Faithfulness over fear. Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the Sunday Sermon of August 9th, 2020 from Christ Church, Jerusalem. There are many things to fear in our time, disease, civil unrest, and a culture that would woo our children away from Jesus. Canon Daryl Fenton reminds us that cultivating trust in the Lord is the best remedy for fear. Rather than allowing our present circumstances to spark fear, we must push through in faithfulness to the God we love and who loves us. Living a life of faithfulness and prayer makes opportunity for our children and grandchildren to know Jesus. Are you blessed by our teaching audio? Are you joining us virtually on Facebook or YouTube? We're so glad to have you walking through these difficult days with us. Let us know you are watching or listening by sending us a message on Facebook or by making a donation to the church, the Mercy Fund, or other projects listed on our website, ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Todah Rabbah! Now, let us begin with a reading from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. We are going to pick up in the middle of the story of Ahab fleeing, running away from wicked Queen Jezebel. And starting in verse 9. And he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and a strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, a still small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazazel as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of uh, Abomeholah, you shall anoint as a prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazazel, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel. All those knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. 
The second reading, re reading is taken from Romans 10, verse 1 to 15. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, the man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand with me for the reading of the gospel. The gospel today is taken from the 14th chapter of Matthew. Just before this passage begins, Jesus has fed the 5,000 on the eastern shore of, this, of the Lake Kinneret or the Sea of Galilee, and he, he hustles his disciples into the boat to go back across the Kinneret to the other side, the western shore. And so our passage begins at verse 22. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost! And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it's I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. 
Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God, the Gospel of the Lord. Please pray with me. Our Father and our King, truly the one to whom majesty is proclaimed and owed, in these very troubled times, separated as we are by disease and sometimes turbulence in our varied societies around the world, one of the true mysteries of faith is ours, that when we gather in your name wherever we are, the Holy Spirit of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is there, here, there, truly everywhere. And so we ask as we come to your word this evening or this afternoon or this morning, whatever it is for us, that trusting it to be the guide for life, the good life, and the description of how we find salvation, that your spirit does his proclaimed work of illumining our minds to see the truth for ourselves and also to move our hearts toward you and in moving our hearts toward you give us the capacity to trust you and then obey. These things we ask in the one who was sent to love us and redeem us and restore us to our relationship with you, Jesus of Nazareth. Amen. You may be seated. Recently, as uh, Sandy, my wife, and I were contemplating our move from America to Israel, we recalled a, uh, a book that was given to us a couple of decades ago when in a similar situation we were moving to the UK, to Great Britain. The book had been written by an American woman married to a British solicitor, that's lawyer for Americans and others. She had lived with him in London for 20 years, and the book, which was called Amerithink, Britthink, kind of peculiar title, was to help Americans understand the British and the British to understand Americans. In the first chapter of the book, which was written to Brits, she wrote a very memorable line, the first thing that Britons need to understand about Americans is that they really think death is optional. And if they aren't quite sure, they're eating bran flakes until the cure is found. Now this was 20-some years ago when that generation called baby boomers, those who were born just after World War II, were in the, the full hail hearty of midlife. When everything was going well in the days they were called yuppies, and they could entertain the self-delusion that they were immortal. I reckon that the COVID virus and advancing age have changed their minds because we all now find ourselves very much more like the readers of Scripture whose average life expectancy was more or less 45. The idea of mortality is laced through all three of these texts that we're looking at this evening. They're connected, 
But they're not connected so much by the idea of mortality as they are by the idea of trust. And so I'm going to ask you to work fairly hard tonight, or this afternoon, or this morning, as we lace these three texts together in reverse order, starting with the Gospel, moving to the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible section, and finally landing on the Apostle Paul's letter to the congregation in Rome. And because all scriptures can have particular or more general application, this evening I would like us to think of these scriptures in terms of their implications for families. For most of the last 15 years of my life, I have traveled from congregation to congregation in Southeast Asia, a bit in Europe and England, and a great deal in America. And everywhere I go, I hear of a distress that I myself know, of families broken, disunited in their understanding of faith, and seeking. And I think these texts tonight, while they can speak to a broader issue, speak very clearly to families. If I were to put what they say into a single sentence, it would go something like this. A parent or grandparent, confident in their relationship with Jesus, will live in a way that is a, the best opportunity for their children and grandchildren to also trust in Him. Let me say that again. A parent or grandparent, confident in their relationship with Jesus, will live in a way that is the best possible opportunity for their children and grandchildren to also be His disciple. So let's go first to uh, the Gospel account we just heard. We aren't going to go through the whole thing. We don't have time to cover all of these texts in depth. But I want to take you to that moment when Jesus at about 3 o'clock in the morning goes gliding across the waves of Lake Kinneret and approaches the, uh, the fishing boat, most probably, in which the disciples were making the way against headwinds towards Capernaum because they were headed west across the lake. They'd seen him feed 5,000 that day. But when they saw him coming towards them, in that messianic way, we see also in the book of Daniel in chapter 10 where it says this angelic figure floated on the waters of the river. When they see him coming towards him, they are frightened and cry out, what? It's a ghost. And he says, it's okay, don't worry, be of good cheer. And Peter, in his inimitably self-confident way, says, Lord, call for me to come out to you. And Jesus, in one simple word, says, come. Peter says, jumps down, you know, the, the, the boat is higher than the water, jumps down from the boat, begins to walk toward Jesus. Now, the preachers of my childhood always taught that the lesson here was that if you take your eyes upon, off of Jesus, you'll sink. And maybe they were right, but I'm not so sure because the text doesn't say that. 
The text says that when Jesus, when Peter saw that the waters were boisterous, he became afraid. I think when we look at our circumstances around us and we become afraid and begin to believe in some inaudible way that temporal fears are more powerful than the Savior who has redeemed us, it's a measure of our trust in him, a trust that Peter did not yet have despite the fact that he had seen miracle after miracle. However, he betrays a very human characteristic all of us betray, that when he was in trouble and overcome with fear, whether or not he really trusted Jesus, he cried out, Save me, Lord! And, of course, Jesus did. Now, the lesson there for disciples is that Cultivating trust in the Lord is the best remedy for fear. You notice that Jesus did not scold Peter. He just said, oh, you have little faith, you have little trust. But he didn't scold. He didn't lecture. He just went and got in the boat. And then everybody said, wow, it got calm. You must be the Messiah. How many times did they have to say that? But the truth was, they could see there was good reason to trust. They just had not yet developed the discipline to do so. The second text, even more entertaining, almost cinematic, is the climax of the story of Elijah the prophet. Many of you may remember it, but a review wouldn't hurt. It has to be a quick one, sort of an executive summary, or we'll be here till midnight. Elijah facing off with Ahab, the evil king, and his even more evil queen Jezebel, and their worship of Baal, the idol, predicted that there would be famine, and would, be, would be drought, and therefore famine in Israel. And the drought came. Later on, in an encounter with, uh, with Ahab, Ahab called Elijah, the troubler of Israel. Later on still, Elijah responded, well, let's have a contest, sort of like a football match. Let's meet on Mount Carmel, you and your prophets of Baal, me and the Lord, and we'll see who's got the real power. We'll each make an offering and see which one the Lord honors. And so you'll recall the story. Perhaps they met on Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal built an altar, cut up uh, a steer, and put it on as a uh, bull, put it on as an, as an offering. And for four hours in the hot sun, they marched around the altar, chanting and praying, getting more and more desperate, ultimately cutting themselves, and finally giving up after many taunts from Elijah. And then, Elijah, you'll recall, cut up the bull, put it on the altar, but then dug a trench around the altar, requested that barrels of water be poured over the altar 
till the trench was full, prayed a prayer, and down from heaven came fire, lapped up the water even, says the text. And then the people of Israel who were with him slaughtered the priests of Baal. But Ahab headed home. Elijah went on up a little further on Carmel and prayed for the rain to come. It's a longer story than we have time for. But soon the wind rose and the clouds came. And Ahab, the text says, hurried home toward Jezreel, where was his palace and his wife, Jezebel. Elijah, desiring to confront him, gathers up the skirts of his robe. He's already had a full day's work. Races down the mountain, running on foot, overtakes Ahab and beats him to the gates of Jezreel where he meets him and confronts him. After that confrontation, Ahab goes into the palace, tells his wife Jezebel, whose uh, priests were these priests of Baal, that they were all dead. And she, in fury, sends a message back out the gates to, to Elijah that he, he will give his life in forfeit for those priests that are dead. Understandably, uh, Elijah heads for, the, heads for the hills, and the text says, into the Judean desert he goes for a day's journey, where he stops and prays, and again after all this triumph, in depression and discouragement, he asks the Lord to take his life. Instead, the Lord sends an angel to feed him and give him water, and he sleeps. He gets up. The Lord gives him an instruction to go to Mount Horeb. He goes, 40 days journey, and he gets there, and he goes into a cave and hides. And that's where we pick up today's text. And what is the first thing that the Lord says to him? Elijah. What are you doing here? And Elijah answers, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Okay. He'd seen all these things the Lord could do, extraordinary, miraculous things, and now a threat caused him fear, and in his fear, his trust was compromised. However, he had done what he was told. Peter sank. What would have happened if Peter had kept moving on? I mean, clearly, Elijah is still depressed, and clearly he's suffering from self-pity. Anyway, the text says he continues to hide out in the cave, but the Lord says, look, go out to the mouth of the cave. I'm going to come and meet you. But Elijah doesn't go out, if you notice the text carefully. Instead, what he does, he stays in the cave while this huge ruckus of wind goes by, breaking off rocks, and then the earthquake, and then fire, and then silence. And then a still small voice 
And finally, Elijah goes out, but having wrapped his cloak around his head. Maybe he was peeking out, like through a burqa. I don't know. And the Lord says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And he repeats himself, I was zealous for the Lord, but they killed prophets with a sword. I alone am left in all of Israel. I mean, he's still depressed. And then the Lord, again, does not abrade him, nor does he comfort him. He simply says, Elijah, here's your assignment. Go anoint Hazazel, go anoint Jehu, and go anoint the person, Elisha, Elisha, who will be your successor. Oh, by the way, I've preserved 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You're actually not alone. And the next verse, which we didn't read, says, And Elijah went. And if we followed his story, we would find that for the next little while, he remains very grumpy. But he obeyed, and in his obedience he trusted the Lord. And if you know his story, he finished very well. Because in the end, like only one or two other people in Scripture, the Lord took him up rather than having him suffer mortal physical death. And now you'll say, my goodness, how does that relate to this famous text in Romans chapter 10? It really comes home in verse 9, but let's take a moment to get there. The apostle begins by declaring his love for his own people, although later he declares God's love for all people, both Jew and Gentile. And he uses his love for them to illustrate the difference between walking in human strength to procure one's salvation, most especially with religious ceremony, because when he uses the word law in this case, that's what he's referring to. He talks about Moses offering the law, believing and doing well as the way to the Lord, and says, he didn't say it's bad, he said it's not enough, but only with faith with trust in God, are we in fact reconciled to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And interestingly, he goes on to quote from the final speech of, of Moses in Deuteronomy chapters 29 and 30, where, where Moses said, this isn't hard, this following the Lord. You don't have to go up to the heavens to bring him down. We're down to hell to bring him up. It's in your heart. It's on your lips. We don't know exactly what that meant, but as far as, the Paul was, as far as Paul was concerned, he was saying, this is the faith. Let's stop here for a second, because working in English, at least, we've got three words that overlap each other, which we'll get to in a moment. Faith, belief, trust. Scripture, in the original languages, conflates them all into a single word. Okay, so with that in mind, now let's turn to this famous one-liner in Romans 10.9. Some of you will know it by heart. Let me read it for you. Let 
It's really, actually, let's start with eight. But what does it say, the scriptures? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It goes on to say, with the heart one believeth. Some scholars call this the Messianic Shema because it declares what Jesus accomplished and what he promises by way of reconciling us to the Father. Let's take the three main verbs that hold it together, that, te- that one line, and quickly take a look at them. The last one is saved. And this is where our opening, our opening illustration about mortality comes into play. Because in Jesus' time, in Paul's time, everybody understood that death was the consequence of sin. They understood it from different religions, but it wasn't like it was disputed. We don't have time to go into the details, but it's why Paul says uh, in Romans, the wages of sin is death. And of course, the remedy for sin in all of the Bible is repentance. So repentance here is implied. But there's more to it than that, because Jesus, the, the risen Jesus in the book of Revelation says there are two kinds of death. The physical death, the mortal death of the body, and basically he says don't worry about that, it's merely a scratch eternally. But the second death, the death of the soul, is the one of which you should be afraid. In the Gospels he's described what it's like. Sometimes he says hellfire, but more often than not he says it's a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, gnashing of teeth, grinding of teeth, the, the ancient symbol of regret, eternal regret. Because you see, a soul can die while the body still lives. But the promise of eternity goes on and on. And so Jesus is laying out and Paul is echoing this promise of eternal regret and separation or eternal communion with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through his Messiah. Now, every parent I know who is a disciple of Jesus desires their children and their grandchildren to be disciples as well. And it's a grief when they're not. Which is why the next two verbs are of extraordinary importance to those of us who are parents and grandparents or perhaps aunts and uncles. To believe in our hearts that God has raised Messiah from the dead, not to give cognitive assent, but to trust that he has, to be obedient like Elijah was regardless of how he felt and like Peter stumbled and wasn't, but later in maturity became able to do, even to suffering death himself for the one he served, because he trusted him eternally so much. When that, that kind of calm and trust is visible in the life of a parent or a grandparent, it is the best testimony to why Jesus is still real. The other phrase, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, I'm afraid was also somewhat abused in my childhood to say you must always be telling people that they're going to hell if they don't follow Jesus and they need to get saved. It wasn't wrong. It was true. 
It didn't work a lot for me. Though there does come a time when if you have acknowledged Jesus as Lord, it's obvious to everyone. Now, those of us who live in contemporary times aren't very good at understanding what a Lord is in biblical terms. The Lord is someone who, who has the right to tell you how to live, can't make you feel any way, but can tell you the best way to feel, and certainly has the right to overrule your preferences. Speaking from my own culture, it's really very un-American. But the kingdom of God is a monarchy. It's a volunteer choice to come in, but what we come into is the lordship of Jesus, because through it, we can know God personally and forever. Um, I don't think there's any way that a child or a grandchild cannot understand who Jesus is or the way in which we are connected to the Father if parents and grandparents live that way and listen for the opportunities, the questions by which we can share who that Jesus is. Um, it's not simple. Whether with our children or grandchildren or with anyone, the ability to speak into a person's life comes when one has lived credibly in their presence and lovingly in relationship to them so that the difficult things and the frightening things, as is our own walk with the Lord, have become means by which they trust you more and when they see you or me trusting the Lord more, they are inclined to ask why. Now, sometimes one speaks before the question, but when the question comes, that's the point at which we have to be ready to answer quietly or with another question. But I want to end with one fairly sober warning. The stakes are high. Because the stakes are high, don't think you can do it alone. The capacity to live trusting Jesus is anchored in understanding his word, using the power of his spirit in your life, but staying on your knees, interceding, interceding without stopping, day after day, month after month, year after year, for those you love who don't know him. I'm afraid in our time, we've become intimidated by our culture into silence. As I've gone around the country time and time again, parents have said to me, oh my goodness, my children are at risk, aren't they? And I've had to say yes. Let me tell you a story filled with hope. A business partner of mine, now gone home to the Lord, a Scot, was the youngest son of three in a very strict Christian Scottish family. His father, in fact, had been president of the Scottish Bible Society uh, and was a very stern sort of father, but loved his children, his three boys. Near the end of his life, they were all scattered at jobs. My friend Ian had joined the Royal Forces, was the skeptic and the rebel in the family, 
and was serving on the Green Line in Cyprus between the Turkish and the, and the Greek lines. Heard the call to come home, went home to see his father. His father was really on his deathbed, confined to bed. The three boys came for a week, they fellowshiped together, they ate together, they talked, they reminisced. And on the last day, as they were all headed home, or back to where they came from, Dad called them all into his bedroom, and one by one, in order of birth, called them to his bedside, had them sit down and speak with him, reminisce some more. He prayed for them and then asked them to kneel in a very old-fashioned fatherly way, laid his hands on their head or shoulders and blessed them. And as the eldest son stood up, he said to his eldest son, Son, I will see you in the morning. Second son came, also a disciple of Jesus. It was the same routine. And as that son rose from his knees being blessed, said, Son, I'll see you in the morning. And then my friend Ian came and sat on the bedside. He said, My father was incredibly tender that day. And the tear came to the side of his eye, and my father was not one who cried. He said, and he prayed for me very earnestly for my well-being and my blessing, laid his hands on me and blessed me. But as I stood up, he said, Goodbye, Ian. That really is the importance of our calling as parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles to live this kind of life that attracts those who see it to the Savior we serve. And it's rooted in the authenticity of that life with Him which is based on genuine trust that He is as powerful as He says He is and capable of facing the troubles and fears that could otherwise overwhelm us. Now the good news is Ian became a very faithful disciple, eventually becoming a missionary in Saudi Arabia. It's a message full of hope, but this business of trusting in the Lord is at the very heart of who an authentic disciple is. I pray that it may be so for you and me. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening. Our sermons and Bible studies are on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. Sermons can also be found on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook for alerts on live streams. If you are blessed by these teachings, please prayerfully consider giving toward the work of Christchurch. Visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Blessings from the City of the Great King.